Amen. Thank you, Luke, and the music team for leading us in worship through song this morning. What a blessing. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 is where we are this morning. As you're turning there, I thought it would be appropriate this July 4th, thinking through uh, what took place uh, just uh, about a month ago that we celebrated, June 6, 1944. You remember it as D-Day. The Russians had been pushing on Poland. The Americans were cleaning out North Africa. The Allies were fighting their way through the boot of Italy during World War II, and all of it paved way for June 6th to come about. It was the decisive moment in World War II. 1.1 million men landed on the the shores at Normandy. Over 150,000 armed vehicles were deployed there. And when those beaches were taken, it was such a decisive blow that Hitler was, in principle, a defeated foe. There was no longer any real question as to whose side would win. But battles kept going. Hitler still fought. There was the Battle of the Bulge. There was the question of if the Germans could make it back to the sea. The answer was a very clear no. Montgomery held in the north, Patton held in the south. There was no way that Hitler was going to win. And all because of what happened at D-Day, every battle that was fought had hope that the war would end soon. In Bastogne, a very famous place where a number of famous battles happened, when the Americans were completely surrounded by the Germans on every side, an officer went to one of the generals and said, should we surrender? We are surrounded. And the general famously said, surrender to a German officer? Nuts! They're surrounding us. They are to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. We're not going to surrender because we're attacking everywhere we shoot. It took a while. May 8th, 1945, known as VE Day when the war was officially over. June 6th, 1944 to May 8th, 1945. Two days. D-Day, when victory was inaugurated, and then VE Day, when victory was finally consummated. And the first day, D-Day, gave hope to all of the troops that that last day would come. That's really where we live as believers. The war has already been won. At the cross, our D-Day, really Christ's D-Day, the war was won. In principle, Satan is a defeated foe. There's no way he's going to win because of what happened at the cross. And yet we still live in the midst of the war. We still live in the midst of the battle. We are still fighting and raging a war. Against a defeated foe, yes, but battles are still taking place. God has won, and God will win, but right now we are in the middle of the war. The Westminster Confession of Faith refers to this war, this period of time, as a continual and irreconcilable war. Victory has already happened, and yet it's still to come. It's a war that will be won because it's already been won. C.S. Lewis said it this way, the world is enemy-occupied territory for Christians. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling all of us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I love that. He's called all of us as spies to infiltrate the enemy-occupied territory of this world, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. D.A. Carson says it this way, the gospel is boldly advancing under the contested reign and inevitable victory of King Jesus. It's already been won, and it will be won. That's why Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation, John 16, 33. You will have problems because you're in a war. But take heart because the war has already been won. I have overcome the world. I say all of this because the passage before us this morning 
has all of these elements of hope in the midst of suffering, of freedom in the midst of oppression, of knowing that the war has been won even as we fight the battles as the war continues. So let's read these short verses. And even as we read them, we are going to prepare our minds and prepare our hearts for communion. As you will see, this will clearly take us to a celebration of the gospel. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 7. We read that it was given to him, that is the beast, who is the Antichrist, was given to the Antichrist to make war with the saints, or the holy ones, and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of, of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Let's pray together. Father, we ask your blessing on our time this morning. We ask that you would take our our minds and our hearts and the eyes of our hearts, as Paul says, and you would open them, enlighten us, give us illumination so that we would understand what we are supposed to understand from these verses. There's so much truth here that's meant to propel us into this week, even into this day, differently than if we weren't here listening to these verses. We are to be changed. And that is impossible for our hearts, our souls, the immaterial part of us to be changed by material people. Ours is an impossible task. And that's why we plead with you. We are dependent on you. If you don't work, then this is wasted time. If you don't work, if we aren't showing up here to plead with you to change our hearts, then this is the worst social club in the world. There's no other reason to gather than to meet with the God of the universe, to hear him speak in his word, and to be changed by him. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray every Sunday, we pray the same prayer because we're dependent and reliant upon you. Open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We cannot see what we need to see if you don't answer that prayer with a yes. So please, not because of our goodness, not because of our merits, we ask on the basis of your grace, open our eyes to see. Stir affections for Christ in our hearts. Bring the gift of regeneration to souls, even in this room today. And may our attention, our affection, be captivated by Christ. We pray it in his precious name. Amen. Revelation chapter 13, as we began last week, is really an explanation of the Antichrist and what he's going to do. We looked last week that the Antichrist, yes, he's going to be powerful, but he's not independent. He works by the power of the devil. He's not original. He can't come up with an original idea. And so he steals and borrows from uh, the Lord Jesus as he has this fake fatal wound. Maybe it actually is a fatal wound and he's raised from the dead. We don't know. We don't need to know. We just know that he's mimicking the Son of God. And he's also not sovereign. God alone gives him the authority to do what he does when he does it. At the beginning of that seven-year period, in the end times, the tribulation, just a reminder of the timeline, the church will be removed, will be taken away. As 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, the church is removed so that the Antichrist can do what he wants to do. So the church is taken away. The Antichrist makes a deal with Israel and really with the world, a covenant of peace that he's going to bring into the world. Remember, we saw that with that first seal where he brings peace to the world in such a way that he doesn't even have to war that much. He's going to go to war later, but not at the very, very beginning of the tribulation. And then three and a half years of decently peaceful times. There's going to be some bad stuff that happens, but decently peaceful as far as politically is concerned. is going to happen for three and a half years. And then at the midpoint, that middle section of the tribulation, three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to turn on his covenant with Israel. He's going to go back on his word. He's going to commit the abomination of desolation in the temple of God because that temple in Jerusalem will have been rebuilt and the Jews will be sacrificing and will be worshiping their Messiah who is the false Messiah, Antichrist. Christ means Messiah in Greek, so it's just 
wrong, false, uh, opposite Messiah to the actual Messiah. And then for three and a half years, the Antichrist will go on a reign of terror. Killing Jews, yes, they're going to flee to the wilderness, as we saw in chapter 12. They're going to hide in the wilderness. God will protect 144,000 and many others. The Jews as a whole at that time will get saved. And then the Christians will be the target of the Antichrist's persecution. So here we are in the back half of that tribulation period, that time of seven years of the full tribulation. We are in the back three and a half years. If you remember in verse 5, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. So that's where we are in what is known as the Great Tribulation. And in the midst of this great tribulation, you might think, we have no reason to rejoice. We have no reason to have hope. We have no reason to have joy. Run, hide, it's going to be bad, and soon it will be over. But I believe these verses give us three very clear reasons to have hope. In the midst of the hardest moments, in the midst of the hardest of days, we have three very clear reasons in these verses to have hope. And they all center around Jesus, because the Antichrist is going to try and fight against our Savior. Oh, but the Savior is going to prove himself more powerful than anything the Antichrist can do or can be. So, reason number one for hope. Number one, suffering with Christ is more satisfying than comfort without him. Suffering with Christ is more satisfying than comfort without him. This is verse 7. It was also given, so again, divine passive, given by God, uh, the authority to the Antichrist. He doesn't get it on his own. God is the one who allows these things to take place. He's given authority to make war with the saints, with the holy ones, with believers, Jew and, and Gentile, uh, Christian and Messianic Jew, whoever they are, if they love Jesus and are called according to his purposes, they are going to have the Antichrist go after them. This is what was decreed all the way back in Daniel chapter 7. You remember in verses 21 through 23 that we read last week, the beast is going to go throughout the whole earth trying to devour the people of God. That's what he's doing right here. And there's irony. There's such rich irony in these verses. You'll probably see it, and you'll probably you'll hear it and, and understand what Jesus is doing as he's saying these words to John. Number one, the irony is that the Antichrist overcomes the saints. Now, why is that irony? You remember back in chapter 2 and chapter 3, the churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor, Jesus said to the overcomer, right? That's the same word here. To the Nico, that's where we get Nike from. To the one who is victorious. Believers will be victorious. But here, the victory is given to the Antichrist. The victory is given to the beast. The one who hates Christians will win. But in him, winning, quote-unquote, over the Christians... The Christians actually overcome him. There's beautiful irony here. Irony here, As the Antichrist defeats and kills the believers, the believers actually have defeated and overcome the Antichrist. There's also rich irony in that second statement in verse 7. Authority over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation was given. Again, the Antichrist just mimics everything that our Savior is trying to do. The Antichrist has no original idea. And so if Jesus is going after every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group, and he's going to get people from every single group, the Antichrist is going to say, I'm going to try the same thing. So he's going after all of those that Jesus has claimed for himself. Some people, when we get to the book of Revelation, at this point in Revelation, chapter 13, the church has been removed, has been taken away. And I think even in these verses, there's reason to believe that that's the case. And that leads some people to say, then why do we study this? If we're gone, it doesn't really matter for us anyway. I, I think that that is a very wrong understanding, not only of Revelation, but of the entirety of Scripture. Think about what we studied with Daniel. Remember last week when we read Daniel? The majority of Daniel, Daniel himself never experienced, right? Right? So does that mean as Daniel's writing the book of Daniel, he's going, well, I'm not going to be here for this, so this doesn't matter for me. No, what's yet to come that, yes, he's not there for, what is yet to come impacts him that day. The majority of the Bible is that way. In fact, if you think only if I'm there does it actually matter for me, then you have to throw out the majority of the Bible because the prophets are all telling things that are coming. They're yet to come. And what is yet to come impacts you today. 
So the same thing is true here. We might not be here. Uh, depends on what view of the rapture you hold. I believe that the church will be removed at this point. Even before the church is removed, we might be dead. We might be gone. And yet this verse has such rich practical application for us right now. And here's what it is. Suffering is destined to come. Suffering is inevitable. And I believe churchgoers today have very little capacity to stand firm in the midst of suffering because the church as a whole in America has been taught that the quote-unquote good life is a life that's free from suffering. That's why churchgoers are going to be destroyed when suffering comes into America. Because I think the majority of churchgoers are hearing God wants you to be wealthy, healthy, prosperous financially, and he wants to give you a good life. That is a half-truth. That's the lie of the serpent. Did God really say, this is what God meant. When God meant, I'm going to satisfy you, God really meant, I'm going to satisfy you with money and with, with fame and with health and long life. That's the devil talking. The Lord says, yes, I have come to give you life and give it abundantly. I've come to give you satisfaction, but it's the kind of satisfaction where you can smile and have joy in the midst of imprisonment. You can smile and have joy knowing that you're going to your death. That's the kind of joy I've come to give. That's the kind of satisfaction that Christ has come to give. This, these are dangerous days for the church. Many pastors preach a Christianity without tears. The Bible preaches a very different truth. If you're not ready or willing to suffer for the truth, then maybe you're just signing up for certain ideologies that you think are correct. I agree with that ideology. I agree with that morality. But you're not loving Christ. This is what happens in Mark chapter 4. Remember the parable of the four soils. There's a soil that receives the gospel with joy and starts to grow, but then when persecution and affliction because of the word arises, it says, I didn't sign up for this, and it's gone. One commentator describes the difference between a true follower of Christ and just an admirer, someone who looks on. He says this, quote, The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Though in words, phrases, songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Jesus, he renounces nothing. He will not reconstruct his life. He will not let his life express what he is supposedly admiring, but not so for the follower. No, no, the follower aspires with all of his strength to be what he admires. What about you this morning? Are you a follower of Christ who loves him, follows him, doesn't care about suffering? knows that Jesus is better than all of the comfort in this world combined? Or are you an, an admirer, looking on, saying, I agree with the ideas, I like the church family, I like the love we have for one another, I like those aspects, but I, I don't think that I would lose my life for following Christ. What do you expect? Can I ask you, what do you expect life to be like? What do you expect life is going to be like for you? How is your life going to play out? For you individually, for your family, for our church family, what is your expectation for these things? Some of us are natural optimists. And to this, the book of Revelation is telling us, yes, things will work out even better than we could possibly hope. Some of us are natural pessimists. And to this, Revelation is saying that if you think that things are going to go badly, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But there's more hope than you could possibly realize at the end. There's more hope. The book of Revelation moors us spiritually and emotionally to something beyond just our optimism or our pessimism. It tells us that things are going to be far worse than we could have thought. But after, they're going to be far better than we could possibly imagine. And this verse, as the Antichrist is given power to kill, to overcome every single tribe, tongue, nation, people group, when it looks like God has abdicated his throne. This verse is going to remind us that was given to him. That authority is God's. Even the demonic inspiration of the Antichrist, the devil can't do anything apart from God's divine authority allowing it, ordaining it. 
That's why Martin Luther, I love how Martin Luther would say it. Martin Luther would say that the devil is God's devil. That God holds the devil on a leash. You can do this and no more. You cannot go beyond what I've been allowed. Remember the book of Job. You can do this, but you can't do anymore. You can do this, but you can't do anymore. That reminds us that, yes, the devil is God's enemy, but the devil is not God's rival. God owns the devil and everything that he's trying to do. So, are you surprised by suffering? Alistair Begg says it this way, we're not to be surprised when we find Christianity maligned and marginalized, when we hear of Christians being prosecuted and persecuted, or when we find ourselves being told that we are extremists, haters, or bigots. For a few hundred years in the West, we've been able to kid ourselves that the normal experience of God's people is to be considered respectable and honorable, to be able to voice our views in the public square and to be welcomed, and to be able to speak to, the power, to those in power and be listened to. It was not ever thus, and it will no longer be thus. We're back to the normal experience of the church, facing opposition and being called to stand firm and undergo suffering for our faith. So yes, though verse 7 is happening in the great tribulation, in the back half of the seven-year period of Daniel's 70th week, though that is yet to come, the principle remains today. Suffering's going to come, but suffering with Christ is better than comfort without him. Hope number two. Security with Christ is more satisfying than sin without him. Security with Christ, being secured in Christ, is more satisfying than sin without him. This is in verses 8 and 9. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. All who dwell. It doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. None of that matters. It's every single person. And the question is, why? Many people think, well, people in the tribulation are just really, really, really bad people. That's not the case. They're not more evil than we are. In fact, the evil to provoke someone to worship the Antichrist resides in you and me right now. You and I would worship the Antichrist. If we were in the tribulation and the Antichrist was raised up as the political ruler over the entire world, we would worship him except for the qualification that's given in these verses. There is a massive qualification. Before we get to the qualification, my question is, why would we all worship the beast? Why does every single person who dwells on the earth at that time worship the beast? The answer is because when we are born, we are born with a heart that loves sin. This is a, a debate that goes all the way back uh, really to the apostles, but right after the apostles, as people were beginning to argue about how are we born, this is uh, Augustine and Pelagius, they were arguing about how are we born? Are we born with a heart that is bad, that's corrupted by sin? Are we born with a heart that's good and chooses good? Are we born with a heart that's spiritually neutral? And Pelagius kind of said, we have kind of a neutral heart. We're born with the ability to choose good and bad. We, we get to decide that for ourselves, and that changes the course of our destiny. And Augustine said, no, we're born, biblically, with a heart that loves sin. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 51. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Not in an act of sin I was conceived, but rather at the moment of conception, I had a sin nature inside of me. We all, out of the box, just love sin. That's why the prophet Isaiah asked the question, this is what God said through him, can a leopard change their spots? Can a leopard change its spots? If a leopard can decide, I don't want to have spots anymore, spots are gone, I'm good. If a leopard can do that, then you and I could get rid of our own sin. But since a leopard can't do that, you and I are stuck with a sin nature and an inability to change our hearts. That's why verse 8 says, everyone's going to worship the beast. Antichrist is going to be able to do a lot. But he's not unlimited in his power. There is a limit, and the limit is found in verse 8. And it's the limit of the refusal of the elect to comply. They will not comply. Look at verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Everyone's worshiping the Antichrist, but there are some who aren't. 
And my question is, why do these people not worship the Antichrist? And the answer is abundantly clear in the text. They don't worship the Antichrist because their names are written in a book. Their names are written in a book. Notice, names, not groups of people like verse 7 describes, tribes, peoples, tongues, nations, names, individuals. There is so much staggering realities and truth about this statement. Before the world was ever created, God knew your name. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before your parents were Googling uh, baby names that are original but don't sound too crazy, uh, which they didn't Google. They were using those books back then. Google wasn't even around. Uh, before they were doing that, God knew what your name was going to be. God knew your name. God knew who you were going to be. And not only did he know your name, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he wrote your name down. Before the world was made, a book was opened and your name was written down. This book of life of the Lamb who has been slain is found seven times in the New Testament where believers are identified as those who name, whose names are written there. Philippians chapter 4, verse 3 is one of them. The other six are found in Revelation. Philippians 4, 3 says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We also saw it in Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus saying, I will not erase his name from the book of life, that's not a possibility. That's a figure of speech called a, a litotes, which is uh, stating something so positively by stating the negative. It's a figure of speech in which the affirmation is expressed by the negative of the contrary statement. Positively said, we could say, the overcomer will receive every single blessing with having your name written in the book of life, and there is no possibility of your name ever being taken out. So we see this name, this book, we see this book with names, we see our names being written there. My question is, why do we need this book? Why is there a book? Why do we have to have this book? Why is this book there? Because without it, everyone would worship the beast, right? Without this book, every single person would worship the beast. So because of this book, the people whose names are written there, they don't worship the reality is, the Lamb's book of life, with names written in it before the foundation of the world, is the way that God enacts salvation and choosing whom he will save, and therefore, we need that book for the purposes of salvation. Said another way, if that book didn't exist, then salvation is dependent on you and me alone. Now, salvation has dependent aspects of what we do in our volitional will to follow Christ, yes. But the final causality, the final determinative reason that we are saved is because of God and God alone. Before the world was even created, he is the one who chooses. He is the one, as the Bible says, elects, chooses, and predestines. He is the one who calls. And if there is no book, with our names not written in that book, then God is saying, good luck. Try and get to me, and I really hope you can. But here's the reality. Not only would salvation be dependent solely on you and me, but staying saved would thus be dependent solely on you and me. If God's the one who writes our names in a book before the creation of the world, then there is no eraser that can take it out. And the beast here in Revelation 13, he can't touch that book. So he can kill you, but if your name's written in that book, he can't take you away from the presence of God. That's why this book is so special. No one can get to it. No one can take your name out. No one can blot your name out. No one can erase your name from the book of life. If God wrote your name there, it's a money-back guarantee you're going to meet him one day in heaven. If salvation were dependent upon the believer's ability to persevere, then we wouldn't need a book in the first place. We need this book. 
And because this book is there in God's presence before the foundation of the world, no one can bring a charge against God's elect. That's Romans 8. Nothing can take your name out of the book. It's a beautiful promise, beautiful hope. Security with Christ. Not every single person's name is recorded in this book. And so the obvious question is, how do you know that your name was written in that book? How do you know that your name was written in that book? I want your name to be there. Now, we're looking from God's perspective, so we don't. We, we can't know. But we can know if God called us to himself. Turn to Second Peter, just really briefly. Second Peter chapter 1. Peter really responds to that question. How do I know if I'm called? How do I know if my name is in that book? How do I know if I was predestined? How do I know if I'm an elect member of God's body? I, I think those questions can run you into a place that you don't need to go. But if you're asking the question, I want to know that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, Peter will say, here, I'll help you. I'll help you. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a slave and apostle, this is 2 Peter chapter 1 of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God our Savior and Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. There's the phrase. He's called us. So the question is going to be, how do we know that we're called? In fact, if you drop down, uh, well, let's just keep going. Verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lusts. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Because if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, here's the key, brothers, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling of you and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So here's what Peter's saying. You've received the grace of God. You were called by God. And he lists out all these ways that God's changing you. And then he says, make your calling certain and sure. You say, how do I do that? By looking at that list. Do I see God changing me? Do I see God transforming me? Do I see love abounding in my life? For others, yes, but for him. Do I see these realities being true? Paul would say it in Galatians, of the fruit of the Spirit, if these things are taking place in your life, it's not that you're working to be saved, it's that once God has saved you, you're going to bear fruit, you're going to get to work, not to be saved, but because you've already been saved. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He's asked this, he was asked this question all the time. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm elect? How do I know that I'm predestined? And he would just say, okay, three questions. Ready? Let's all take this quiz. Three questions. Question number one, do you love Jesus perfectly? Do you love Jesus perfectly? The answer should be no, right? None of us love Jesus perfectly. Second question R.C. Sproul would ask, do you love Jesus the way that he deserves to be loved? And if you answered no to the first question, you should answer no to the second question, right? If you don't love him perfectly, then you don't love him as he deserves to be loved because he deserves to be loved perfectly. Third question, do you love Jesus at all? Do you love Jesus at all? And if the person would say, yes, not perfectly, not the way that I should, but I love him, and I wish I loved him more, then R.C. Sproul would say, and I believe the Bible would say, there's no way that you can have that love for Jesus if you're not saved. How is it possible that you were given affections for Jesus if not by the gift of regeneration? If you say with joy in your heart and affections for Christ, Jesus is Lord, 
Paul says nobody can say that apart from the Holy Spirit, right? Nobody can say that and genuinely mean it apart from the Holy Spirit working in your life. So when Revelation says there is a book with names written in it, I pray that your name is there, but I don't know. And I don't know because I don't know that book. I don't see that book. I don't see my name in that book. And that's why Peter says in our time and space, from our perspective, we can know by the fact that we've been called, by the fact that God has chosen us, by the fact that our fruit is demonstrating that he has regenerated us. There's no other way that we can get into that book. And that's why it's called the book of life of the lamb who was slain. It's the lamb's work at the cross that brings salvation to us. The gift was purchased at the cross. His substitution that achieves our salvation. When God wrote the names down in the book of life before the foundation of the earth, he is choosing at that moment how he is going to save those people. He saves them through the work of the cross. The cross wasn't plan B like plan A failed. The cross was always plan A to save people. Jesus himself said that on Thursday night in the upper room when he is passing out the elements and sharing them with his disciples. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the sins of many, not all. I'm dying to achieve salvation for those whose names are written in the book of life. Salvation was accomplished at the cross. And yet, here's the beauty. It would be so easy. And I know that there are people, probably even now in this room, going, well, then that makes the offer of the gospel not fair. People can't really receive Jesus if their name isn't written in the book of life, and so therefore this isn't really fair. And That's why I love the Bible. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Okay, there's a book from eternity past that has the names of all of the elect, of all the believers, and if your name's not there, you will not be saved. And then at the exact same moment, God says, anybody who wants to come to me, come. If anyone listens and hears with a heart that wants to submit, come now. There is zero tension in the Bible between God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility in salvation that leads anyone in the Bible to say, well, I guess I don't have to do anything. Or I guess it's pointless, so I can just sit in my lazy boy and do nothing because if I'm elect, I'll be saved. And if I'm not elect, who cares anyway? There's no tension like that in the Bible at all. Right here, back-to-back verses. Only those whose names are written in the book of life will be saved, and anybody can be saved. Go, come on, come. Follow Jesus. Why? Because it's a perspective issue. We don't know who's in the book. We don't need to know who's in the book. We just need to hear the, the call of the gospel over our lives and submit and repent and turn to him. And by the way, if you do that, your name's in the book. I think of Paul writing Romans 9, saying that God prepares people for salvation and to not be saved. God knows, God ordains, God chooses. And in the very next chapter, how will they believe unless we're sent? If anyone calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will be saved. If anyone, anyone. So don't, don't put attention into the Bible that's not even there. Yes, 100% God's sovereignty and salvation, 100% man's responsibility and salvation. How they work together, yes, it's a mystery, but nobody in the Bible has a problem with that mystery. Acts chapter 2, Peter tells the Jews who killed Jesus, hey, you killed Jesus. And then he says, by the way, you killed him by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God who delivered him up for us all. And no one in that crowd of thousands of people goes, time out, if it was God's plan all along, then why am I responsible for killing the Messiah? Nobody says that. They all get on their faces in repentance and weep and say, what must we do to be saved? By the way, if your name is not written in this book, it's not because you were predestined to go to hell. You'll never see that in the Bible. You never see anyone who is predestined being predestined for hell. Predestination is always only attached to believers. You get to heaven by somebody else doing the work for you. You get to hell by your own works. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which we've read several times now in our study in Revelation, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
verse 8, the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. Again, this is the Antichrist. With all power, with false signs and wonders. That's what we saw last week of these, um, the fatal wound that is miraculously healed. And then it says this, verse 10. With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why do those who worship the beast perish and go to hell? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Notice it doesn't say they perish in their sins and they die and they go to hell because their names aren't written in the book of life or because they were predestined to go there. No, it's because they chose that. That's what they chose. Because in Revelation chapter 13, it says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Turn now, repent now. And if you decide, I love my sin more than I love the Savior, and God allows you that option, and you will spend eternity separated from him. Therefore, there is no tension here that leads people to say, I don't need to ask God for salvation, I don't need to repent if I'm elect. There's, there's none of that in the Bible. It just leads to worship, and it leads to action. I love verse 9 because it tells us really two things. Number one, if I can just make one comment, that phrase in verse 9, we've heard that phrase several times. Remember chapter 2 and 3? It was at the end of every single letter to the churches. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then it always said what the Spirit says to the churches. So why doesn't it say that here? I think because the church is gone, right? The church is gone at this point. So Jesus is saying, if anybody has an ear, let him hear. And I'm just giving this to the whole world because the church is out of there. But secondly, and much more importantly, this is an open invitation to all. All who dwell on the earth are given the invitation. That's why, on the last day, in their judgment, they will be held accountable for their decision to not follow Jesus and instead to follow their sin. Suffering with Christ is more satisfying than comfort without him. Security with Christ is more satisfying than sin without him. And finally, number three, steadfastness with Christ is more satisfying than peace without him. Steadfastness with Christ is more satisfying than peace without him. This is verse 10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance in the faith of the saints. This is where we get that phrase, perseverance of the saints. This is God who called you to himself will bring you to a place where you will be saved eternally, finally. He who began the good work and you will be faithful to complete it. He who called you will bring it to pass. He is faithful. Some of your translations might say different things. Verse 10 is a very weird verse to translate. It's actually a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. It's interesting, in that passage, it's dealing with um, the, the, the captors of Israel being destroyed. Here it's dealing with believers being destroyed. And again, there's irony here. Notice the irony. Believers, the, the point of this verse is saying, if you have been predestined by God as a believer for the death of a martyr, you will die that death. If you're going to be persecuted and God knows that and God has ordained that for you as a believer, it's going to happen. If you're going to be held captive, you're going to be taken captive. If you're going to be killed with the sword, you're going to be killed with the sword. That's what it's saying. This is for believers. Believers, God knows the day of your death, the type of the way that you're going to die. God knows all of those things. And the irony here is those whose names are written in the book of life, verse 10 says, will be killed. They will be killed. This is a promise of suffering. But this promise leads to perseverance. My question is, how is this encouraging? How does this give us hope? Here's the answer. God knows your death. God knows the way you're going to die. He chose the way you're going to die. And if you're asking how that's encouraging, read that last line. This is the perseverance of the saints. You will die the death of a martyr. You will die as a believer. Here's the encouraging thing. God will keep you even in the hardest of circumstances. He will preserve you even in a martyred death. You will not lose your salvation even in the face of the worst possible 
persecution and suffering. This is actually more than just not losing your salvation. This is persevering in your salvation in the face of death, in the face of destruction. Because Christ is better than safety. Christ is better than protection. Christ is better than freedom from pain. This is why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, hey, God can deliver us, King Nebuchadnezzar, from the fire. God can do that. But even if he doesn't, oh, King, we can't bow down to you. See, we'd love for our God to protect us from the fire. But even if he doesn't, that doesn't change the way we live our lives because burning in a fire with Jesus with us is better than being taken out of the fire and enjoying comfort in this life separated from Christ. This is like Peter. Remember in the end of John's gospel when Peter denied Jesus three times and then Peter's told by Jesus, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then he says, you're going to go to a death where people are going to take your arms and stretch you out and they're going to kill you in a way that you don't want to be killed. He's speaking of his death. He's speaking of his crucifixion. Peter, you're going to die by crucifixion. And we asked the question when we were studying the Gospel of John together, what must Peter have felt when he heard those words? You're going to die by crucifixion, Peter. You and I hear those words and we go, oh man, it's not really what I wanted. <laughs> My son always says, we talk a lot, we watch the voice of the martyrs and the torch lighters and all these things about martyrs that have died for their faith. And, and I'll say, hey, Ethan, if you, if somebody were going to kill you because you love Jesus, would you say, okay, fine, I'm not going to follow Jesus, or would you gladly die to follow Christ? And he says, how are they killing me? <laughs> I'm like, I say, that's really smart. And I say, I don't know, pick one. He goes, can they kill me while I'm, Sleeping in my bed? And I say, no, I, I was thinking more of something like we've seen in the voice of the martyrs or the torchlighters. He goes, well, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't deny Jesus. I would still follow Jesus, but I would much rather die in my sleep when I'm old. <laughs> hey, man, all of us would. Amen. All of us would like to. So when Peter hears, hey, you're going to be, you're going to die by being crucified. You know what I think? I think his heart soared. Because just days earlier, he had denied Jesus in front of a little slave girl at a campfire. He said, hey, I think you're one of them. And he said, no, I'm not. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. You're going to get to the end. And when given the chance to deny me and live, you're going to say no. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Richard Vermbrand, who died in 2001, was a prisoner for his faith in communist Romania from 1948 to 1964, experienced terrible persecution. He said this, quote, Not all of us are called to die a martyr's death, but all of us are called to have the same spirit of self-sacrifice and love to the very end as the martyrs before us have. This verse tells us that, yes, we're going to suffer, but suffering with Christ is more satisfying than comfort without him. Yes, we're going to have hard times, but security with Christ is better than sin, worshiping the beast and getting everything that comes with following the beast. And this passage tells us that steadfastness with Jesus is more satisfying than peace without him. As we wrap this up, there's a story of a missionary who was returning to the United States when back when you would only travel by boat, not by plane. And it happened that the missionary who was coming back was also on the same boat that a very famous, uh, acclaimed national figure was coming back on as well. And when the boat docked in New York, there was massive crowds of people, photographers trying to take pictures for newspapers, just there to welcome a sign, this acclaimed national figure coming off the boat. The missionary scanned the faces and he realized that not one of the faces in that crowd had come to welcome him. He'd been gone for years, laboring in the cause of Christ, and no one had turned up to greet him. And as he began to be so sorrowful, self-pitied, and despairing, a truth struck him as clearly as if a voice had spoken to him from heaven, saying, do not be discouraged. You've not reached home. This isn't the message of Revelation is don't be discouraged. You have not reached home. This isn't it. But one day, 
Jesus will come back. He will return to rule and to reign. Like the hymn writer says, he will reign wherever the sun's successive journey runs. And you'll make it. You and I will make it to the end, not because of our ability, but because of his strength to cause us to persevere. Alistair Begg wrote in a journal uh, several years ago, you remember when the United States Supreme Court decided to change the definition of marriage, and he wrote down in his journal, this is the saddest day of my life in America. But, he continues, I know that God is still in charge, so we'll just proceed accordingly. It's exactly how we live our lives. Things are going to get worse. God's still in charge, so we proceed accordingly. And the reality of this text for us today is you never, ever, ever, ever have to fear the beast if you belong to the Lamb. First John tells us that the spirit of the Antichrist is already here, even though the Antichrist himself has yet to come. And John says, you've already overcome the spirit of the Antichrist. You don't have to fear the beast. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, fear not, because your Savior has already overcome the beast. If you've experienced the benefits of D-Day through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, then you know VE Day, oh, it's just a few days away. It's right around the corner. Brothers and sisters, if you've experienced the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and it's changed your life, your name is in that book. You will persevere. And one day, with the kingdom of God as Jesus returns, you'll rule and reign in peace with him forever. Father, we thank you so much for our time and your word this morning. And as we sing in response, we want to sing with joyful hearts knowing that no matter what, come suffering, come war, come oppression, come persecution, you will never let us go. You will not let go your grasp on us. You will hold us fast, and you will bring us safely home. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.